Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. A few years before the midpoint of the 19th century, in Poughkeepsie, New York, a 17-year-old boy sat down, closed his eyes, and dictated a book that detailed the formation of the cosmos more than a century before NASA would send out its rovers. It also laid out a theory of the transmutation of species several years before Darwin would publish his theory of evolution, and it advanced a strong and sometimes dismissive criticism of Christianity at a time when Protestantism was a dominant cultural force in America. The book was The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and A Voice for Mankind, and the young man was Andrew Jackson Davis. Today on Occult Confessions, the mesmeric subject who inspired Edgar Allan Poe and predicted the advent of modern spirit communication, the Poughkeepsie seer, Andrew Jackson Davis. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant for this show and these proceedings. Joined this day by James Caplangis, our captain of the table. Howdy, it's James, captain of the table. You just said that. That's wonderful. That is my title, and I'm here for all of you. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. We want to welcome Del C. and J.B. and thank Derek C. for the pledge bump. And remind all of you out there uh, that we are most grateful when you feed us those stars on Spotify and send our love to everyone who's sending us those those stars uh, and drop a review for us wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Uh, And if you're able to join our Patreon, uh, now's a great time. We have some new bonus content coming out in the next couple months over the summer. Uh, We have some time to get caught up and get some work done on the, the bonus content, so... Uh, Slender Man is coming out soon. It's a Brie episode. Uh, then I'll be doing a series on L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, so by all means, join us over on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Uh, now we have annual memberships, uh, so you don't have to think about it. Okay, let's close up that order of confessors. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Andrew Jackson Davis was born on the 11th of August, 1826, in Hyde Park, and relocated to Poughkeepsie on the 1st of September, 1838. His father was a shoemaker, and his mother died when he was young. Davis apprenticed as a shoemaker himself. In autumn 1843, a Mr. Grimes visited Poughkeepsie to demonstrate animal magnetism. Uh, That is to say, he he didn't magnetize animals, he uh, was a mesmerist. Uh, Mesmerism... Uh, goes all the way back to, uh, well, not all the way back, in the case of the 1830s here, uh, mesmerism began the century before, 50-so years before uh, the period that we're talking about right now with Franz Anton Mesmer in France, um, but had since made the leap over to the United States. And and Davis, uh, you know, being exposed to it, uh, it was sort of at a time when it was uh, of the fashion. It was was a new thing, an up-and-coming thing. Uh, so this this roving mesmerist attempted to magnetize Davis, but was unsuccessful. William Levingston, a tailor, became interested in mesmerism as well, and Davis volunteered to try being mesmerized yet again, this time by the tailor Levingston. And this time was a success. Quoting here, A great variety of tests were submitted, such as requiring him to visit and describe places which he had never seen, to read from a closed volume with his eyes bandaged and etc., and the result was to establish his power of interior sight beyond dispute. He then began to treat disease while mesmerized and began to speak on matters of science and the soul, showing an intimate connection with the spirit world. Davis and Levingston worked together for 18 months, combining their work mostly to Poughkeepsie, and at the tail end of their experiments traveled to Danbury and Bridgeport to demonstrate Davis's medical clairvoyance. On the road, Davis met Dr. Silas Smith Lyon in Bridgeport, and while in trance, selected him to be his mesmerist for the creation of a new and ambitious work. 
When he was 17 years old, Davis sat down while in trance to communicate a complex, nearly 800-page manuscript on the formation of the cosmos, the earth, the transmutation of species, the meaning of religion, the true story of Christianity, and the fate of the soul. Davis claimed that his information came from his journey through the higher spheres of being, and this colored how his editors sought to portray him, and how he wanted to be perceived by the world. He was, for example, described in the prologue to the book as poorly educated. Now, this was significant. Uh, mediums that would follow Davis uh, would, would take on more or less the same ideology or, or the same uh, pre- presentation of self, I should say, that, that their, their education came entirely through their engagement with the spirit world. This was a way of um, sort of getting ahead of detractors or, or charges of fraud that they had you know, gone and learned all the things that they would lecture about uh, in the perfectly natural way. What makes it amazing is that he's a 17-year-old kid, uh, but also that he theoretically did not have uh, much formal schooling. He learned to read imperfectly, according to the introduction to the book, uh, but could write a fair hand and do simple arithmetic, bearing in mind the introduction is not written by Davis himself, uh, but is a way of introducing people to how the the work was created uh, by those who edited it. He spent his days doing manual tasks and didn't frequent public libraries, goes the story. In fact, he was seldom known to take up a book. To that end, Davis was frank, open, sincere, and inexperienced. Too much so to delude the world with his tome. His scribe and editor was William Fishbaugh, who Davis had first met in July 1844 and selected to work on the book with him just over a year later. Fishbaugh, who must have believed in the supernatural provenance of Davis's ability, curiously included a complicating letter from one A.R. Bartlett, who knew Davis from 1842 to 1845, and described Davis as someone who, quoting here, loved books, especially controversial religious works. He became a good thinker, says Bartlett, although his natural method of communication tended to obscure his thoughts. Bartlett went on to say that Davis sympathized strongly with the downtrodden and was a temperance man, but these comments about the reading sort of are contradicting the story that Fishbaugh and company are trying to tell in the prologue, which is that Davis was not especially educated. But it's Fishbaugh and company who include this letter from Bartlett, so they're willing to allow some complexity to sit here. It's not necessary that we believe that Davis is wholly unlettered, untutored, unschooled, uh, to appreciate the book, or at least that's the impression that Fishbaugh is giving. There's a lot of testament to the fact that Davis is not educated, but then there is this Bartlett letter that sort of sits in the midst of this. Davis selected three witnesses for his work, uh, in addition to Lyon and Fishbaugh. They were the Reverend J.N. Parker, who had since removed to Boston uh, in 1840-something, so... <laughs> You don't go looking for the Reverend J.N. Parker today. Theron R. uh, R. Lapham, who resides at present at Poughkeepsie, at present again, the 1840s, and T. Leah Smith, M.D., who uh, you would find at that period in Bermuda. There were also 23 named incidental witnesses to the writing of the book, including the utopian socialist author Albert Brisbane and the future spiritualist leader Reverend S.B. Britann. But there were more witnesses in total, with lectures having between 1 and 73 people present when they were given. That's a crowded room. These witnesses are numerous enough that we can be fairly certain the book came about in the way Fishbaugh describes. Wow, that's pretty amazing. But, like, don't you think that's kind of weird, like, ethically? Like, you put someone under... And then, like, they wake up and they're, like, surrounded by people watching them be hypnotized. Fishbaugh says that for each session, Davis took three to five minutes to become magnetized. He convulsed as if receiving an electric shock, and then his eyes were bandaged to prevent from being interrupted by the light. After five minutes of stillness and silence, another round of convulsions brought him to a state of external consciousness so that he could speak, but was also cold, rigid, motionless, and insensible to all external things, as if dead. This description may sound familiar if you've read either of Edgar Allan Poe's stories on the subject of mesmerism. 
Edgar Allan Poe had been inspired to write his tales about mesmerism after seeing one of Davis's demonstrations. In the mysterious case of M. Valdemar, Poe created a scenario in which his narrator mesmerized a man at the point of death and kept him there until he cried out to be released. Once the magnetizer's hold was relinquished, the body of the mesmerized subject, which had been or would have otherwise been dead for all this time, uh, dissolved into a gross puddle. Poe's audience, primed by real-life mesmeric subjects like Davis, was inclined to believe his mesmerist tales were true, and Poe did little to disabuse them of their error. He liked a little scandal. Davis claimed that any break with the magnetizer during the period of, of uh, mesmerist, mesmerism, when he was in the mesmeric state, uh, would result in his spirit, Davis's spirit, being unable to re-enter his body. Trances lasted between 40 minutes and 4 hours, and comprised 3 to 15 pages of writing. And Davis gave a total of 157 lectures. Curiously, Fishbaugh notes that Davis used technical and foreign terms, but sometimes mispronounced them. This, along with the note from Bartlett about Davis's uh, trouble communicating, suggests that Davis's work was as much the product of a spiritual journey as it was a kind of personal genius. There's a lot of uh, Davisisms, I guess, uh, in the text, or at least in the way the text was spoken. Davis's trance was the highest form of magnetized trance precipitated by mesmerism, according to the man himself. Quoting here, the mind becomes free from the organization except as connected by the magnetizer and then is uh, capable of receiving impressions of foreign or proximate objects according to the medium with which it particularly becomes associated. The body at this time is dormant and inactive in all its parts except the negative or muscular and vital action, which is constantly kept up and controlled by the united forces of the operator upon the operatee. This is near to the state of death, except that an ethereal thread continues to connect the free and floating spirit of Davis, off in the, you know, spheres of the spirit world, to his body here on earth. Sort of like a umbilical cord joining the two. Mesmeric subjects who do not achieve this higher state of trance enter an experience more analogous to sleep. So just because you're mesmerized doesn't mean you're going to be able to do this astral traveling that Davis gets up to. Fishbow published the work more or less as it was delivered by the speaker with very little editing for clarity or redundancy. He concluded his introductory remarks by addressing the reader directly. He said, Reader, do not consider this book as a standard so infallible as to relieve you from the exercise of your own reason. Remember that although it is the production of a mind immensely exalted and having access to the knowledge of a higher world, it is still the production of a human mind. And if the work will not stand upon its own intrinsic merits, let it be rejected. This was actually a fairly novel idea, or at least approach, uh, to, to new religious thinking. Davis created this book with Fishbaugh and Lyon in the last years of the burning over of Western New York. The Millerites, Mormons, and Spiritualists all got a start in the same region. Same region of the United States in the same few decades. Also, by the way, the Shakers and the Odeana community found a home in the burned over district. They didn't get started there, but they did live there. The spiritualists, of whom Davis would become a leading figure for a large stretch of his career, were unique in holding with Davis that spiritual revelation should not be treated as divinely inspired unless it can prove itself true in some sense. The question then becomes, how true was Davis's first and arguably most impressive revelation? He starts by arguing that natural law dictates that man is naturally good. He says man has lost much of the light and knowledge which he would now possess, if the real had existed in place of the artificial. The road to knowledge is unrestrained investigation, which will inevitably lead to truth. 
Ecclesiastical bodies, he says, are most responsible for holding back new truths as they are discovered. This is not to suggest that truth is purely scientific or empirical. External should be distrusted, like fruit, that seems pleasing to the eye and the stomach, but that you discover is poisonous a few hours after eating it. Hmm. The man is the internal. The effect or form is external. The mind is not acted upon by, but acts on the body. That which is internal is the reality. That which it acts on is visible and mortal. All forms and externals are effects, not causes. Davis seeks to prove the visible by the invisible. And put this a different way. Just as the body shows the actions and intentions of the mind, so your mind does the thinking, your body does the acting, we can see what your mind is up to by what your body does, so too is this true of how the universe formed and continues to operate. Existence emanates from a central positive mind which exists at the center of a circle like the sun, emanating thought. This central mind acts on Davis's mind while he is in trance, and he brings those thoughts back to the natural world, namely you and me. Davis says that the great supreme mind does not act on his mind directly, but rather he perceives the second sphere of the spirit or internal world and brings his impressions back to his body. The great positive mind's law of truth pervades all things, which is how it passes through the second sphere to Davis. I pass from the body with a desire for a particular kind of information. This desire attracts a particular kind of truth of which I would be informed, separates it from all other things, and causes it to flow into the mind. And when I thus obtain the truth of which I am in quest, I return to communicate it through the organization. Davis makes a kind of theosophical point that there is a constant motion moving through and connecting all of nature. The vegetable grows out of the mineral and the animal springs from the vegetable. The animal in turn gives to and takes from both of the other spheres. Hence, says Davis, there is a ceaseless and endless chain of formation and reproduction, loss and gain, accumulation and dispersion, taking place yearly, hourly, and secondly, uh, throughout the universe yearly hourly and secondly not meaning not the second time but you know by the year by the hour and by the second some substances and elements progress far enough to not be visibly perceptible any longer in this world another way of saying this is that matter contains within itself an eternal law of progressive activity every particle davis says will pass through the animal state and theoretically higher states how do plants turn into people exactly i do really like this idea of perpetual motion i mean it's it's real but like does this predate the like scientific discoveries of atoms and molecules i don't know the purpose of this progress is the creation or individuation of spirit the original cause uses nature as an instrument, a means, a vessel, fitted in all its various parts and complications to produce its ultimate, which is spirit with a capital S. Spirit is created to establish a communion and a sympathy between the creator and the thing which is created, such that created entities work their way back to the first cause. So, says Davis, the first or great positive mind operates as a cause through nature as an effect to produce spirit as an ultimate. This is very hermetic, uh, theosophical, Hindu in its way that creation is trying to ascend back up, uh, that, that, you know, spirit descends down into matter and then matter must ascend back up into spirit. We see it in the Emerald Tablet and all sorts of, of occulty texts. A general principle of inherent goodness also pervades creation emanating from the first cause. From the lower to the higher states of animal existence, there is one chain of universal sympathy, justice, and benevolence corresponding to the harmonious reciprocations observed in the vegetable kingdom, also to the exalted and unperverted morality of universal humanity. Davis described a pre-Big Bang universe that isn't too far off from what some modern physicists suspect. He said, in the beginning, the univercolum was one boundless, undefinable, and unimaginable ocean of liquid fire. 
The most vigorous and ambitious imagination is not capable of forming an adequate conception of the height and depth and length and breadth thereof. It was without parts, for it was a whole. Particles did not exist, but the whole was as one particle. There were not suns, but it was one eternal sun. While the ocean of fire may not be something physicists would embrace, the notion that everything at the start was one particle does have a place in 21st century thought. The idea that, you know, the universe was just a little particle and that there was some, uh, some physicists argue there was an imbalance in gravity somehow <laughs> that triggered that particle to explode out into everything that exists. The center of power produced suns, which became their own centers, and then came planets and satellites, all revolving in circles, with concentric circles of suns extending out from the center of the universe. Davis just loves circles. He gives a broadly correct description of the planets, describing Mercury as dense, Earth and Mars as similar, Venus as less dense, I'm guessing because of the gaseous atmosphere, Jupiter as more refined, and Saturn as surrounded by the seeds of future planets, which is another way to think about the rings. In theory, planets form out of these little tiny uh, bits of rock that gather stuff around them and form planets, and uh, Saturn, that's what it is, little tiny stuff floating around that planet. The planets after Saturn are more refined and less dense, with immense orbits. Saturn demonstrates the degree to which new worlds are always forming. Creation, then, he says, has just commenced. Davis is broadly correct about these things from the perspective of modern science, but that's not to suggest his ideas were original here. Human beings had been observing the planets for thousands of years, and with magnification since Galileo. So no minds blown just yet. Davis conceives of time outside of a Christian paradigm and maps it across a vast span of eons. Now here we're starting to get to some deeper uh, ideology, deeper stuff, deeper philosophy, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a 17-year-old in 1840s America. If every second of animal life that ever has elapsed upon this globe, from the first sentient production until the present moment, could be comprehended, Still, all would be but one second in comparison of the time that has elapsed between the first assumption of form by particles and the breathing forth and establishment of the last system of the sun. Whether or not we consider statements like these to be any kind of marvel, they certainly suggest a very progressive kind of thought for a man dictating these entranced thoughts in the 1840s. But, but Davis says a still more unusual thing that begins to suggest some form of knowledge deeper than can be found in a library. He says that electricity, follow me here, pervades the infinity of space. It penetrates all substances with all their component parts, and there is not one particle in the realms of infinite space that is not within its composition the unparticled and active agent of electricity. This seems very much like Davis is describing the electron, an entity that would not be discovered until 50 years later in 1897 by J.J. Thompson. No relation. I mean, it's wild stuff. Um, Davis is at a point in history where, you know, we don't have electricity coming into the home. The concept that electricity could even be wielded for something like this is still 30, 40 years out uh, from where he's at in, in the span, the history of technology. But he's saying it's everywhere. He's identifying the electron in so many words. It, it's pretty amazing. It's electric, don't you think? No, that is pretty amazing that he predated the electron. And like he like perfectly described it. Like as you're reading it, I'm like, electrons. All right, so let's enjoy that triumph for a moment because after describing the electron, Davis goes on to make perhaps his greatest mistake in the book. It isn't this, but this is also a mistake. Davis suggested that Neptune, like Uranus, has six satellites and its atmosphere is made of fluorine and nitrogen. He's wrong. But 
Like I said, this is not his greatest error. He's right that Neptune has little oxygen in its atmosphere. Where he goes wrong is when he argues that Jupiter and Saturn have vegetation on them, as well as animal life. And both planets have humanoid inhabitants as well. In fact, says Davis, Mars, Venus, and Mercury all have their own residence, just like Earth. So yeah, it's true, Uranus and Neptune are uninhabitable, but Davis thinks they're the only ones. The people of Saturn and Jupiter are more spiritually advanced than other beings in the solar system. They make their choices according to interior motivations rather than exterior stimuli, especially when it comes to choosing mates. The people of Jupiter are larger and more beautiful than Earthlings. Their legs are short, and so they walk with their hands in an inclined position. They live about 30 years before their bodies dissolve into the spiritual ether. Both Jupiterians and Saturnians live in peace and spiritual brotherhood with their fellows. Obviously, for us modern observers, Davis's Jupiterians and Saturnians aren't scientifically viable, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from his description of them. They describe an aspirational state for human beings, in my opinion. So let's think about them as a metaphor. They seem less concerned, our Saturnians and Jupiterians, with material things and with personal property. On Saturn, they live in enormous communal buildings. And on Jupiter, they live in tents. All planets beyond Earth's orbit, including Mars, are of a superior quality and constitution. Mars also has vegetation and inhabitants, but they are intermediate between the higher beings of Jupiter and Saturn and the lower people of Earth. On Mars, they have three nations rather than a single community of Saturn and Jupiter, and there is no reason for political or national conflict on Mars, let alone war, which makes them a bit better off than us, but still not quite as evolved as those other two planets. So there's a logic and a progression to the way the solar system functions in Davis's mind. Yeah, uh, Rob, I gotta say, I I love this. I love that. I know I know it's not verifiably correct or whatever. The finger quotes in the air. I know it's not right, but I love it, and I want to believe in this more magical universe further lessons closer to the sun, planets on the other side of Earth's orbit have less developed inhabitants. On Venus, the inhabitants are divided into two groups. One has a constitution that is generally good, and the others are stout, savage, ferocious, and cruel. So we got two groups on Venus. On Mercury, there are the fewest number of humanoid inhabitants. They're constantly active like animals and uninterested in the causes of things, thinking only of how things can be used. They engage in regular warfare and persecution, leading to strife and malice. They are hairy, a bit like orangutans, but I doubt Davis is saying anything in particular about the relative morality of the hairy. It's just that's incidental. Both Venus and Mercury reflect the ideal from the negative side that in order for a species to achieve peace and advancement, they must bring everyone together. Venus is inferior because despite its nation of the good, they're perpetually in conflict with the nation of the bad. Mercury suffers from a disinterest in study and understanding, which seems to go hand-in-hand with materialism and conflict, anti-intellectualism, and willful ignorance, and Davis's philosophy is a recipe for disaster, and I can't say I disagree. Davis next turns his attention to the subject that the book is perhaps best identified with, namely transmutation. Transmutation was an early theory of evolution. It picked up some steam in the half-century before Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Transmutation theories were mostly speculative. Lamarck, for example, argued for transmutation, but he also believed in spontaneous generation, without having persuasive evidence for either. So it was really a matter of belief before Darwin. There wasn't a clear argument uh, to justify that belief. Transmutation turned out to be correct in Lamarck's case, whereas spontaneous generation didn't. Both were a kind of educated guess on his part. And it was Darwin who provided the mechanism and the explanation that was missing. So Darwin didn't come up with evolution as an idea, 
but Darwin provided the evidence uh, to back up the theory, or I suppose develop the theory. Transmutation certainly had the right idea before the theory of evolution, but because of its lack of scientific grounding, it remained controversial, and Davis took a controversial stance by embracing it. Davis also exposed himself to charges of fraud insofar as his ideas often resembled those of one Robert Chambers, who published perhaps the most prominent treatise on transmutation before Darwin in the year 1844, uh, which was before Davis was creating this book. All right, so the criticism of Davis on this score, that he just copied Robert Chambers, when he, at least on the subject of transmutation, not on all this other stuff, is more complicated than it appears on the surface. While Davis agreed with Chambers on a variety of points regarding transmutation, he also disagreed with Chambers. I can't say that Davis wasn't inspired by having read Chambers, but it's also inaccurate to accuse him of plagiarism. To contrast Davis and Chambers, we need look no further than their discussions of race. For a modern audience, perhaps Chambers' most glaring error was his claim that non-Caucasian races were imperfect. Chambers says, The greater part of the human race must be considered as having lapsed or declined from the original type. In the Caucasian or Indo-European family alone has the primitive organization been improved upon. The Mongolian, Malay, American, and Negro comprehending perhaps five-sixths of mankind are degenerate. Of course, completely scientifically inaccurate, uh, but there it is, sitting in the midst of Chambers' argument about transmutation, simply a reflection of his European bias. Boo! Thumbs down. Disagree. I'm sorry, I gotta say. Uh, I think all humankind has been approved upon. You know, hot take. But that's my opinion. Davis, by contrast, argues that we're all degenerate. Insofar as the tribe of Cain defeated the tribe of Abel in early human history, and we are all descended from those Cainites. Davis talks about all races beginning as black and developing other skin tones, but he does not create a hierarchy between them, and he does not privilege the development of Caucasians in his racial history. Speaking on one point in his chronology, he says, The inhabitants of the European continent, which had multiplied to a great nation, had not ascended to any important degree of refinement, for in every particular they were far below the condition of the nation in Central America. So the Central Americans, at one point in Davis's chronology, are doing better than the Europeans. Uh, and it's not really clear to me, reading it, where, when that changes in, in his imagination, or if it changes. Now, this isn't to suggest that Davis's book is entirely free of 19th century racial politics, but it is a vast improvement over what we read in Chambers. And, and it's evidence, in my opinion, that Davis is not just copying Chambers. Davis explained that inert matter evolved into plant life, and then plant life to animal life, first in the ocean. While this suggests a form of spontaneous generation, the question of how Earth went from a planet without life to a planet with life actually kind of remains a mystery, even up to today. Where did life come from? How did things go from just being, you know, rocks, right? planets burst out of that single particle and there's just rocks floating in space and then there's you know, living things. Where did they come from? How Earth went from a planet without life to a planet with life. Uh, so Davis's solution is as good as anybody else's on this question. The evolution of inanimate matter, plant life, and animal life all follows a pattern from motion to life to sensation with each unfolding in turn. I guess we could think about, you know, algae floating in the sea and the algae become the amoeba and the amoeba work their way up to, you know, you and me. Thus, the present era represents a progressed condition of the previous sea tribes and of the vegetable productions for each had imperceptibly assumed its present condition by virtue of the change experienced by the whole earth, water, and atmosphere. In yet another misstep, Davis argued that the motion of the tides is not caused by the moon, and he wondered why, if the moon exerts a gravitational pull on the earth, aren't things lighter when the moon is overhead? This is a good question. I mean, not not about, you know... <laughs> 
the moon he knows is always the same size, but it's a good question. Like, why don't you feel a little, little more spring in your step when you got the moon right over top of you, as opposed to on the other side of the earth? Davis ascribes the tides to the centrifugal force of the earth's orbit. While he may have been wrong about these and other particulars, his broader ideas hold fairly well. Davis acknowledges this as a possibility and suggests that readers focus on the larger picture. Yet, if there should be any inclination to dispute the foregoing classifications of geological and organic developments, let the objection not be arrayed against isolated and detached phrases, sentences, or propositions, but let the attack be at the basis, the foundation, on which rests all that has been and shall be said concerning those indestructible truths which are greater than man can comprehend or duly appreciate. There's a tacit acknowledgement here that while Davis is confident in the big ideas his book contains, he can't be so sure about the details. Davis is clear throughout the book that he is the agent for his revelations, the revelations that Fishbaum is recording. And by that, I mean to stipulate that Davis, the teenage human being, is doing the astral travel and achieving the spiritual insight and then translating that insight back to his scribe. This isn't a communication straight from the angels or the spirits or God. It's a communication from Davis. And as such, it is fallible. We've seen the various ways in which Davis went awry, but we don't discount other major works for containing errors. Let's just think about this for a second. So yes, the electron thing is cool and the span of time and all this, but you know, the the extraterrestrials on Saturn and Mars, kind of funky. But Davis is not the only one who makes glaring errors in his book. Uh, And other folks have made glaring errors, what I'm trying to say here, but we still keep the heart of their argument. Charles Darwin, for example, in On the Origin of Species, argued for the existence of cell seeds, or gemules, which combine for sexual reproduction. The parents with the more vigorous or plentiful gemules help to determine more of the offspring's characteristics. In other words, the strength of my sperm determines how much of me my child will look and act like. Let me put this another way. I get together with my wife. This is not just about dominant traits. It's a matter of which individual has the stronger uh, seeds, the stronger seeds inside of them. If my wife's eggs are stronger than my sperms, the child will look more like my wife. If my sperms are stronger than my wife's eggs, then the child will look more like me or act more like me or more of my traits will be passed on. We know now that this is not how this works. Darwin was wildly wrong about the gemules, but his general theory was still correct, and his book is still worthy of admiration. Davis was wildly wrong about the existence of Venusians, Martians, and Saturnians, but that that does not make his insight about electricity any less amazing. Does his pre-Darwinian embrace of transmutation or his conception of time as profoundly long impress us any less for his having been wrong about Venusians? Getting back to Davis's natural history, prehumans were hairy, with low, wide heads, short, heavy bodies, and long limbs. Next came a dark and gigantic species with a more perfectly formed spine and a large, inactive brain. The third variant was smaller, less hairy, and the first to walk on two limbs. And just before humans came another species of giants with a smaller but more active brain. Then came us, humanity, which developed originally in Asia and Africa. Davis interprets the Garden of Eden as the fertile regions in Asia and Africa where the first Adams and Eves took form. Uh, note here I'm saying Adams and Eves, because in Davis's uh, theology, or, or, or whatever you want to call it, Davis's history, Adam and Eve were not individuals, but rather two tribal groups who came together, and their fall from grace was actually language, speech. Not long after the introduction of verbal sounds as signs of impressions, the inhabitants became disunited in social affection in consequence of the misconceptions conveyed by those sounds. They could not enjoy each other's society, for every expression of the mind which was originally pure and unadulterated 
was now clothed in a false sheath, and this created disunity and confusion among all the inhabitants. Well, Rob, language is a virus, and for our listeners, if you don't know, now you know. This is distrust of language is a regular feature of his principles of nature. Only more debased beings need to communicate with words. More advanced beings often communicate in a form that's best characterized as telepathy. So in the higher non-physical spheres uh, that Davis visits to compose his book, beings do speak but share thoughts by gazing on each other's faces, and they can read their fellows' thoughts this way. This loops back to his contention that his book may be imperfect, but at its core are ideas worth sharing and considering. Davis next turns his attention to the development of religion and begins his treatise on Christianity and the Bible. His critique of the principles of organized religion are a revelation unto themselves. We could deal with them probably in a whole episode, split off from the rest of this business, Uh, but we'll try and keep it brief. Davis offers an opinion about the significance of nearly every book of the Old Testament. Again, imagine this guy. He's got bandages on his eyes. He's sitting there. No notes, right? He's entranced speaking off the cuff, off the top of his head. And he's going through the books of the Bible in order and cataloging every one of them and offering insight on each of them. He says the Song of Solomon could have been left out without consequence. (laughs) He's also not impressed that a being like Jonah of whale fame ever existed. And his book, Jonah's that is, could similarly be dropped. But even with these edits, Davis isn't especially impressed with the book as a whole. The Bible, he says, has even darkened the pathway that once was illumined by the spiritual promptings of mankind. It has obstructed the progress of physical and spiritual development and has therefore operated against its alleged design. Recall, by the way, that he's writing in a nation of Protestants not far from the origin place of the Second Great Awakening. There are Christians everywhere, and these are fighting words. Davis does not tend to believe in evil, which he regards as an unevolved form of what will be good. Most modern spiritualists talk about evil much the same way. He also doesn't believe in hell, which he labels a prehistoric superstition. And so he doesn't accept the idea that Adam and Eve endowed all of humanity with an inherent sinfulness in the metaphorical garden. Oh, how unjust, he says, to charge the divine mind with creating man and endowing him with all the attributes of purity and goodness, and at the same time withholding from him a competency to resist temptation. It is unholy, Davis says, to suggest that God constituted humans as perfect, only to injure them for life and even beyond the grave. Christians may protest, picking up their Augustine, that God's plan was for Christ to atone for our sins, but Davis sees you coming. The concept of vicarious atonement makes no sense in his analysis. But the death of Christ had no possible connection with the sins of the world, nor with the cause of sin. Sin, indeed, in the common acceptation of the term, does not really exist. But what is called sin is merely a misdirection of man's physical and spiritual powers, which generates unhappy consequences. The death of no being will exerperate these evil consequences. Nothing short of a general knowledge of the causes of these evils and of the general capabilities of mankind will restore the permanent harmony and happiness to the race. Davis has more to say about the modern Christian concept of earning a ticket to heaven. Yes! You must have your original sin washed away, but then comes the question of belief. To believe in Christ is to ensure eternal salvation. Citing the gospel quote that he who doth not believe will be damned, Davis observes that a human being cannot believe or disbelieve in anything at will. Quoting here, he cannot control the convictions of his own judgment, but is obliged to submit to be controlled. 
He can no more have faith upon any subject at will than he can, by the exercise of will, have a warm or cold feeling, or a love, or a hatred, or a delight, or a displeasure. I love this concept. I mean, like you said, it, it's pretty it's like self-explanatory and obvious, but also very, I don't know, on the nose and, and wise. Yeah, I love this. I love thinking about it. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to think about it later on, too. I mean, I got to be honest, I never really thought about this this way, uh, but he makes a good point. It's fairly obvious that we cannot control what we believe, but Christianity in particular and the Santa-directed Christmas signage uh, <laughs> that we see every December place the burden on us to believe. I've argued in my scholarship about American spiritualism that belief is a product of experience that can only be developed and strengthened through first-hand exploration. Spiritualism embraces this path by demonstrating spirit communication and then inviting spiritualists to experience it directly. So you hear from the medium, you know, they see your grandmother and they try to give you a message that they couldn't know through natural means or Google it or whatever, and you're impressed. But then, then they direct you. I mean, the next step is for you to begin meditation and, and work to try to make direct contact with the spirit. You build and grow your belief through these unfolding experiences. It's that third way of knowing where you're, you're really gathering evidence and working to create a case for yourself about this. Uh, but I, I don't see this really happening in, in Christianity. Christianity is not so concerned with building the case. Certainly there's there could be emotional reactions actions and things, but there's not an invitation to demonstrate or to have demonstrated to you the value of the faith of the truth of the proposition in quite the same way that we see in occult practices or like spiritualism. The last major theme of the principles of nature portion of the book, which is most of the whole volume, is the composition of spirit spheres and how humans pass to and through the second world to begin. We have a spirit that precedes our body. Our mind is not created out of our body. Rather, our spirit molds our body according to its characteristics. We are shaped from the inside out. The soul is composed of love, will, and wisdom. Love is its germinal essence, will its living force, wisdom the perfection of love in the soul. Davis becomes pure spirit and leaves his body behind to travel the second sphere and perceive the whole arcana of the various earths in the universe. Davis is able to read the memories of the spirits there and converse with them, you know, without talking, um, because the spirits don't speak to communicate. We make a similar transition, by the way, when we die, except that Davis returned to his body, whereas we cannot after death. When we enter the second sphere, the peculiar sphere unique to our spirit determines which other spirits we will be drawn to and associate with. So within the second sphere, there are these subgroups, three societies, namely. The first is infants and uncultivated minds. The second uh, has been, uh, are a group that have been instructed on divine truth. And the third is the, so in, theoretic, in theory, all of us, <laughs> everyone listening out there, and in here, the third is the highest echelon of spirits within this particular sphere, mostly deriving from Jupiter and Saturn, so not likely to get there. The spirits retain their memories and assume the same bodily form that they had on Earth, feeling as if they were only transferred to a country they knew not. The environment is like a perpetually lush and green version of Earth. Eh. As far as afterlife goes, I'm a little disappointed. You know, like, why do I have to have this same body? Why can't I customize my avatar? Like, what are, where are the upgrades? You know, like green, lush scenery. I could go to Scotland. Like, what, what's new? Show me, show me the changes. Just as humans are constantly dying and entering the second sphere, so too are the spirits of the second sphere constantly moving on to the third or celestial sphere. This is a still more paradisical sphere with its own more elevated societies, culminating with the third celestially pure society. There's also a fourth and fifth sphere getting closer and closer to the divine mind, and the seventh sphere is the sphere of the spiritual sun. 
For Davis, the afterlife is very pleasant and social, but it's also not any kind of final destination. The second sphere is only a first step on a journey back to the source of all spirit and matter. Davis makes one of his most significant predictions near the end of his discussion of the second sphere. Like his comment on electricity, it is important and strangely accurate, but not something he dwells on for very long. Speaking on the ability to communicate with these spirits, that is to say in the second sphere, through his astral travel, Davis says, quoting him, This truth will ere long present itself in the form of a living demonstration, and the world will hail with delight the ushering in of that era when the interiors of men will be opened, and the spiritual communion will be established, such as is now being enjoyed by the inhabitants of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn because of their superior refinement. It's one of those quotes you'll hear from spiritualists, but without that Mars and Saturn stuff at the end. The year after Davis published his book, this is what's amazing about this. I mean, he's, he's predicting that humans will begin to communicate with spirits. Not too long from now, he says. And the year after he published his book, Kate and Margaret Fox would have their first communication with the spirit of a man who had died in their home before their family had purchased it. These spirit raps would happen not far, actually, from where Davis dictated his principles of nature over there in that burned-over district outside of Rochester, New York, and they would launch an international craze attracting millions of people in America, Europe, and beyond to the seance table, a craze that has certainly you know, taken on different forms over time, but has by no means ever gone away. There's still mediums practicing right now. A couple of years after finishing this book, Davis would travel to Connecticut to investigate a pair of young sibling mediums and publish a book connecting him up with the spiritualist movement. He'd draw the connection himself. Uh, although his prediction of, of the movement coming and his engagement with the spirit world, I mean, he, he really are, was, was tailor-made to fit right into spiritualism. Uh, so it's no surprise uh, that Davis became a leading figure in American spiritualism, but he also grew disgusted with the movement uh, over time as its interest shifted from uh, the philosophical lectures of people like him, transmediums, to the fantastic tricks performed by physical mediums. Overshadowed by full-form ghosts popping out of cabinets and levitating mediums, Davis would eventually make a clean break from spiritualism and attempt to create a new religion called Harmonialism. But his name would be forever joined to the movement of spiritualism in the history books, and his fame would forever be linked to his very first revelation, namely the principles of nature. So a final question for us, are the principles of nature great, or are they nonsense? Most criticism of the book throughout history and on Wikipedia centers on the claim that Davis, Davis only ever read one book, and that book was a novel. So this is the idea, that before the 17-year-old sits down and dictates these 800 pages, he read one book, and it was a novel. Perhaps Davis said this, uh, perhaps he said it more than once, or perhaps others said it for him. But I'm going to say, in my opinion, that has very little bearing on the merits of the principles of nature. This claim is extrinsic to the book itself. The book openly acknowledges that Davis read more than just a novel. In addition to Bartlett's letter in the introduction, Davis himself cites books by Emanuel Swedenborg, namely The Economy of the Animal Kingdom, and Charles Fourier in his lectures, suggesting the book is not quite like Blavatsky in its voracious command of occult and scientific tomes, but it is at least happily and unapologetically drawing on other authors' ideas to construct an argument. Blavatsky's use of other sources does nothing to diminish the immense depth and meaning of the secret doctrine. And the same can be said for Davis. To compare the two books, Davis lacks Blavatsky's complexity. The book is long, but covers many topics in a straightforward and fairly systematic way. Think about the way the planets are lined up and how the, the elevation of each of the entities on each planet is in descending order. I mean, everything is very reasonable, systematic. 
And this is intentional. When Blavatsky emerged on the scene and Emma Harding Britton embraced a kind of spiritualist occultism, Davis was one of the major critics of their complex hierarchy of elementals and ascended masters. For Davis, there are spirits and there are humans and everything comes from God and that's it. This simplicity is what makes Davis so refreshing. All the theological complexities of Augustine are wiped away when Davis observes that none of it is written in the Bible. The tremendous Christian burden of conjuring and maintaining belief is relieved when Davis reflects our own life experience, saying that we can't make ourselves believe in anything. That's not how belief works. And transmutation is the logic whereby universes form, organisms evolve, and spirits ascend. Morality itself exists on an evolutionary trajectory. There are no hard lines. Nothing is black or white. Everything exists in a perpetual state of change, moving from one state to the next. I mean, there's consistency. It's clean and consistent. Certainly, a 17-year-old developing such a complex and detailed book while in trance is an amazing feat. But if we get caught up in how the book amazes, we risk losing its philosophical insight. The point is not that Davis predicted the theory of evolution, but that he extended it into a philosophy of the material and spiritual dimensions. Even Davis's solar system humanoids, while fanciful, serve to illuminate this philosophy, as I've been saying. His book is imperfect, but for all its imperfections, it's full of penetrating insights and thought-provoking ideas that make it well worth reading still today. Final thoughts, James? You know, uh, it's pretty amazing that at such a young age, he was able to uh, put out this like 300-page manifesto. You know, it's hard to get 17-year-olds to write like a two-page paper, so... It's pretty miraculous, and even though he did, uh, you know, he extrapolated a little bit much, you might say, but I'm here for it. Honestly, I love I love the alien speak. I love the Jupiter giants. It's uh, it was this was a fun episode. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such time as we get together and do it again. I want to thank Andrew Mims for providing us with the voice of Andrew Jackson Davis today. And I want to thank uh, Dan Schaub, Dan Schaub Designs, uh, for recommending this topic to me. Uh, I've always been a fan of A.J. Davis. I've always been interested in A.J. Davis. I've read portions of this book, but I've never sat down to read the whole book cover to cover. Uh, and, and Dan gave us the opportunity there by requesting A.J. Davis for our conversation, our last conversation in our Occultists by Request series. Speaking of which, uh, it is time to move on. Summertime is on us. Uh, so uh, we're going to step back a bit. Uh, th- this particular series is over. There will be no more Occultists by Request. I-, I don't mean to close the book there. We have been getting more suggestions and ideas from folks, and we are always op- open to those. Uh, and and I-, I probably will get around to doing a series like this again. Uh, for Occultists, we just can't fold into our other topics or um, you know, suggestions we can't fold into our other topics. But... Uh, we're, we're going to be done done for now, done with really year five here, uh, season 20, series 20, uh, coming to a close. Um, but we're going to stretch it is what I'm trying to say, because it's summertime. Uh, we're going to drop some interviews on you, some, um, a couple of extra things, uh, um, and, and then we're going to get into our first series of the sixth year, although really we're well into <laughs> year at this point uh, since we launched on Valentine's Day but you know it is what it is and our next series uh, is going to be on Genesis we're going to do a series on Adam and Eve a couple of episodes on Lilith the serpent seed theory and all sorts of conspiratorial and occulty goodness here on Occult Confessions <laughs> <laughs>